It's Amber Bradley, your host for the unscripted side of LP. It's Talk LP Podcast time. What's up, Talk LP fans? It's Amber Bradley here with a special guest. We are so stoked because Raul Aguilar has stepped into the Talk LP hot seat, Deputy Assistant Director of the Financial Fraud Division of the Homeland Security Investigations. And honestly, Raul, like a bit all the rage right now with Operation Boiling Point. So we are stoked that you're here. Thank you, Amber, for the opportunity. We have a great team and uh, I can't take any of the credit. There's a lot of folks in the uh, across the country that are working this day in and day out. And I'm very um, I'm honored to come in and, and talk to you a little bit about what we do from a headquarters component and really the the partnerships that we're establishing across the, the space on uh, to combat ORC. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So you have had so much success and been in the news recently. Unfortunately, because it's due to all of this uh, retail crime, organized retail crime all over the place now. But so let's back up and just start for the audience, just in case you've been living under a rock and don't know Homeland Security Investigations is kind of the background and what they're doing and all that good work that you're heading up. So talk, talk a little bit about that and then we'll really get into Operation Boiling Point. Sounds good. A little history. So HSI is the principal investigative arm of Department of Homeland Security. We have over 6,800 agents assigned around the world, and we're in two, over 230 offices in over 90 countries or 90 offices across the world as well. And we have broad investigative authorities, everything from narcotics to money laundering to child exploitation. Um, and we do that every day in and day out, working with our uh, state and local partners across the country. Uh, so really, it's, a, it's, a, it's an agency that has the right authorities to, to attack organized retail crime and any of the collateral crimes that come with it, either drug smuggling, human smuggling, trafficking, um, drugs, uh, gang activity, any of those fit perfectly into our investigative authority. So I think it's important for people to know why we we fit so perfectly in this space. And, and then we believe that every one of these crimes has a financial gain aspect behind it. So our, we really focus a lot on going after the assets and going after the banking accounts and, and seizing money away from these criminal organizations. Yeah. So how long has this organization been around? Yeah. So just a little bit of history in March 2003, um, going back 20 years, the Homeland Security Act set in motion what would be the single largest government reorganization after DOD, Department of Defense. And it started with Department of Homeland Security creating the Bureau of Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And then that morphed into ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And we fall under the umbrella we're the lead investigative arm, which is Homeland Security Investigations. And like I said, we're, um, we work hand in hand with, with our state and, and local task force officers. We have up to 3,000, uh, over 3,000 state and local task force officers are assigned to our SAC offices across the country. Uh, there's 30 SAC offices and we're in over 90 countries around the world. So this is, this is very cool. So people listen to the podcast, I would hope, and the fact that they like to get unscripted, right? And I warned you kind of walking into the hot seat. Sure. But so I'm curious of, you know, you said 2003. And honestly, it's it's almost like the loss prevention executive out there has been beating this organized retail crime drum for a long time, it seems. And I've been in the industry 25 years now, which makes me feel old, but it's true. And so you think about all the education that the loss prevention executive has done to say, ORC is not shoplifting. And all of the people going, ah, it's shoplifting, right? For years. So 
clearly doing some research. I love that on the website and everything, you're like, ORC is not shoplifting, period, which is amazing. And I think everybody is breathing a collective sigh to kind of be like, finally, we're getting the attention. So my question buried in all of that is from your observation and opinion and clearly your expertise, like, has it been the increase in all of this crime that has finally garnered the attention that ORC and now you guys are talking about even more broadly category, these organized theft groups. Now is it, why now? Why is it finally getting the attention it deserves? Yeah. So as I came in to take over the deputy assistant director role and ORC was being discussed, you were seeing the smash and grabs, you were seeing the violence, you were seeing retailers reaching out to local SAC offices, uh, us addressing it with partners. I also did a little bit of research on where we came from on, on this space. And really since 2009, HSI has been under a different initiative going after any frauds associated criminal activity associated with ORC. And really we, we testified in Congress, I believe in 2009 with our assistant director along with some other federal partners on the topic of organized retail crime. And really, when we get into Operation Bowling Point, that is the fresh, new, revamped initiative, which has got an aggressive marketing campaign and a call out to partners and really distributing leads to the field and really guiding those guardrails so we can help figure out if we can maybe prosecute them for other charges. So that's what I'll get into later. But really, we've been looking at it since 2009. And, you know, you can go back and look at that testimony um, that we're working collaboratively with some of the same partners, you know, the FBI, the U.S. Postal Service, Secret Service. So um, why now? You know, it's affecting the economy. Uh, the violence is through the roof. Uh, you know, we really we feel for the for the retailers. Uh, I see the violence happening on the news. And we really believe these are criminal networks that are out to profit. Um, from these from this activity and, and HSI has the investigative authorities to to address it and and we really like to do this in, in a united way with with our interagency partners so you know the timing just worked out um, uh, you know COVID could that have had an additional uptick and and the fact that you can so easily get on marketplaces and sell sell the merchandise absolutely that's part of it and in this in the cyberspace we're very dominant we work multiple types of cases uh, multifaceted investigative teams that go in and, and can do some really incredible work. And uh, again, you know, that that's probably what sparked the revamping of it. Well, that's so cool. So if you're out there listening to this thinking, oh, finally, Homeland Security, welcome to the party. You guys have been there. You've been there. Yeah. You've been fighting for this. Now we have. I like... even found a I found an old pamphlet. It was called the search initiative. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we've been looking at it for a while and then, you know, just the cases have been continued throughout the field. Um, you know, we're doing a much better job of consolidating our efforts and tracking them and revamping under specific codes so we can track initiatives. And really, there's been a congressional interest. We've done seven briefings um, at staffer levels to really discuss the problem, uh, a national problem, and see what we're doing with our partners. Yeah, that's really cool. So you're probably breathing the same sigh of relief that it's getting such attention on, I would say, just the societal side, right, with media and all the rest of it. We're all saying, finally, you know, we're getting the attention this deserves. Okay, so let's talk about Operation Boiling Point. I want to hear from you. I mean, clearly, everyone's reading the news, and you guys have some phenomenal um, resources on the website that help explain this, success stories, videos um, from that, that Rila helped you with, which are amazing. But so let's talk about, I want to hear straight from you, Operation Boiling Point and kind of get into those four pillars. 
Yeah, so I, I, I'd be remiss not to give credit to the team, um, our public affairs, our Office of Public Engagement, our criminal investigators, our analysts, the whole headquarters leadership team, along with working with the state, uh, our, our, um, our SAC offices, we really needed to put out the pillars. And if you remember um, what we did after COVID and the COVID response with counterfeit goods and fraudulent merchandise and things happening right after COVID, we launched Operation Stolen Promise. That was kind of the guide rails that I used. And really in discussing what we could do, we launched Boiling Point using similar strategies. So the first one right away is establish and foster and maintain a public and private partnership that has to be sustained and, and really developed. And, and that's happening across the space. Where we got innovative is we included the banking industry for several reasons. Most of these organizations, if not all of them, are in it for, for profit and they're laundering their funds through a, a variety of ways, through the banking system, through the money service businesses, through payment to payment, peer to peer services. So we wanted to make sure that they were included. And that was our first initiative. And we did that with an association named ACAMS and with CLEAR. And it really brought to bear and, and listening to the interviews that Ben's done and, and a few others, I, you know, it really, I think it was the first time that it happened. And we did that in an interagency uh, initiative so we can get the perspective of other federal agencies as well. And we ran it through the Department of Justice and some prosecutors that, that, that could, you know, look at the cases as well. So we, we, we did that in that partnership. The second is we, we need to obtain, develop and provide investigative leads that can be um, run through the ground and, and, and actually utilized in the field. And we're doing that with our headquarters intelligence teams through our National Lead Development Center up in Vermont. Uh, there'll be some, some more mentions in that as we, as we publicly announce some more initiatives there, where we work hand, work hand in hand with, with retailer investigative teams, with other federal agencies, with state and local investigators to really understand the network, do a deeper dive in these criminals, who are they operating with? Who are they traveling with? Um, are they going international? Do they have um, bank accounts? Uh, and really looking at the leads more so than just catching someone uh, maybe coming out of a store and not having additional information, right? So that that is the second thing. We're developing those leads and getting those out to the field. And we really don't care if it ends up becoming a federal or state prosecution. We really just want to get that to the SAC office in the field and let them develop it organically with their own teams because we're a headquarters component and the last thing we want to do is dictate how things are going to be prosecuted in the field. The third is disrupt and dismantle these OTGs, right? Off, uh, organized theft groups. We want to put people in jail for their criminal acts. We want to seize their assets, their illegal gains, their illicit assets, and we want to shut down the any of these websites that they've utilized. You know, we've seen fraudulent websites pop up like the case King of Thieves out of Houston. $134 million ring with pharmaceuticals. They're often tied to other collateral crimes like I talked about. So any way we can dismantle these groups, drug networks, gang activity, we're doing that through that third pillar. And the fourth is really what we're talking about today, the public awareness campaign, getting the message out. Can we take and put stuff on the website? Yes, we did. We went to ice.gov. We did that with our media team and with our public affairs. Um, we're doing engagement outside of the normal investigator to investigator relationship. We're talking to congressional leaders at every level, at the state level. We're working with uh, orcas across the country, with retailer associations, like in California, when I was out there talking to, uh, to Rachel, she invited me to present. 
anything we can do in that public awareness, visiting even individual companies, going to companies like Target, Walmart, working with CVS and Walgreens, all these Home Depots, anything we can do in that space and with the legislative teams to get the word out that, that, we're, that we're working these cases and that we can't do it alone. It's a true partnership we're doing. So that, that in, in a nutshell is um, Operation Stolen, uh, excuse me, <laughs> Boiling Point. And, uh, and we use the Stolen Promise um, initiative because of the success um, when we were targeting counterfeit goods, you know, right at the start of um, 2020 with COVID. Yeah, those are super um, on point outlined, right? Is you hit all the major things that I'm sure all the retail community is super excited about. You know, and I was I was interviewing John Melvin with the GBI a couple um, podcasts ago, and he talked about you know the the depth at which these OTGs are funding things, right? Which was honestly a bit staggering, right? Because you're like, okay, yeah, they're selling stuff on um, marketplaces, but you know with with all of your expertise, like, what do you see? I mean, he actually mentioned um, terrorism ties, right? Down to, you know, funding things with Hezbollah and all kinds of stuff where you're like, this is yeah. really serious, you know, in this, the security of our country. I mean, clearly you guys are seeing those types of things, you know, when you're doing these investigations. Yeah, so I just presented at the uh, International Chiefs of Police Conference uh, at the Transnational Organized Crime Committee, and really the the topic of the day was because it was international, was the other collateral co crimes that are tied to this, and uh, you mentioned them, you know, narcotic smuggling, uh, labor trafficking. You're talking about gang activity. So yeah, we see those nexus, and again, because we've been targeting you know South American theft groups coming from either Chile or from. Colombia or any of these other countries in Latin America, or if we're targeting Russian organized crime or, or any of those other networks internationally, we our investigative authorities fit perfectly because of, of that international nexus. So we're always trying to tie that back to some of those countries. Can we do an enforcement action in those countries? Can we work in a diplomatic relations fashion to get that information back to the local country to also try to dismantle them there? Um, and then really, again, is targeting the financial aspects of this. The, the reason why it's so prevalent and why it's a $60 billion industry, according to RELA and other studies, is because they're, they're making profit. And, um, you know, from, from fraud schemes that I never even imagined, as I'm looking at cases coming across the country from return fraud uh, to um, credit card fraud to store-bought card fraud, and then getting back online and committing even more fraud online, stolen identities, um, we really, it, it runs the gamut of, of the investigative authorities that we have and the criminal network's imagination to create cases for us because we see them coming in almost every week. And I, it's a new scheme <laughs> that I'm very surprised. Now, where it becomes critical is that we share that intelligence and we work with the Secret Service, the FBI, the DEA, whoever's been already targeting some of these networks, so we can interchange that and try to blow out that network, make it a bigger case, and then provide that back to the field so they can prosecute and seize assets. Yeah, it's really interesting too. I mean, if you're listening to this, and um, and we have all different audience types, right? From the VP to director to the regional to the store investigator, right? So if you're listening to this and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, this may or may not apply to me, you know, jump on the website because you guys have success examples on the website, everything from gift card fraud at Target to catalytic converter theft. I mean, which, you know, you talk about imagination, right? Like taking yeah. the metal out of the catalytic <laughs> converters, it's crazy. So 
And it's affecting people. I mean, I've talked to yeah. multiple people, even some of our investigators, that it happened to them. <laughs> and just discussing their private lives, they're like, oh, yeah, my catalytic converter was stolen as well. Somebody just recently told me, one of the guys I was talking to. So it, it is. It, it runs the gamut. It can affect any of us. Um, so really, in a, in a, the, the, the economy is affected. Obviously, the cost of the consumer I think their estimates up to $500 per family because of the theft. And, and, you know, it, it just, it's a, it's a vicious cycle that we need to all do more on. So that's why we're agreeing to do these, these media interviews and, and get the word out and really the, the hard work that's happening in the field uh, to, to go after these criminal networks. So. Yeah. I mean, I know you can't talk specific success that you're like about to have, but certainly had a ton already yep. and it's listed there on the um, website in, any intel you can give us right beforehand? I don't think well, any OTGs listen to this. I'm just kidding. I'll go, I'll go over just a couple of recent successes and then one last night that really caught me by surprise. I don't know if you saw it. Um, I won't ruin the surprise. Let's go with Chicago first. So three weeks ago, Chicago did a massive takedown, massive investigation, multiple retailers all working conjunctly or, or in, in conjunction with our state partners and our, and our HSI team there. Um, the pictures that I saw, it, you know, it could fill half a semi truck, six box trucks. It almost looked like a Costco, um, you know, distribution center. That's how much product was seized. The key there, though, is the financial bank accounts that we're still trying to investigate, that we're still trying to work with and, and, and subpoena those records and, and see how much money flowed through there. Can we trace it? That is what the investigative team continues to do uh, on that uh, case. And, and, and it's critical that, that they continue that case. So that's really what I can say. Uh, multiple arrests, three, three or four states. I think it was 12 search warrants. Excellent, excellent case that took a year long, I believe, of undercover work as well. Transitioning to Charlotte, I just spoke to the special agent in charge there, and they put up a, a Twitter feed. This case showed uh, multiple weapons seized. So if you go to our Twitter feed for Charlotte, you'll see it front and center. And I believe there'll be an interview later today with the, 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 the special agent in charge or the deputy where they go a little bit more details about the theft. And, and it was the typical stealing from the stores. We worked traditionally with our retailer partners, um, a great police department, state and local team that was working with HSI, uh, several search warrants, uh, seized product, I think up to half a million to a million worth of product. But then the guns that they posted on the Twitter, you'll see the weapons that were seized. These are criminal, violent actors. And that, that one really uh, was the first one I've seen where they seized that many guns and they posted it. So it's important for viewers to see that. But the one that shocked me yesterday, which brings up an old joke from the Wendy's commercials, where's the beef, is not a joke. Um, they seized and, and arrested three individuals in Miami on a theft ring running across the Midwest worth up to $10 million of stolen beef and pork, pork products. And it, it, there's a couple news articles already out there. They sent me the link from our office in the Midwest that, that spoke about it. And again, why are they doing it? It's $10 million worth of product. See how much money they can launder, how much money they can make off this. They're stealing them from the cargo uh, side of the house, which we, we have an aggressive cargo theft team as well. And uh, it really is the first time I'd seen uh, meat products being stolen. And, and since I've been doing this here in, in, in headquarters under this um, uh, tour but the health and safety side hasn't right. really been discussed can you imagine um secondary stores selling stolen meat you know yeah. was it stored correctly right uh, has it been tampered with you know most of the time i do my speaking engagements i really talk about the next iteration of hsi's strategy is going to be focusing on the health and safety side of this 
when you're talking about stolen test strips for, for diabetes, makeup for, for people to wear, anything that can be applied to your skin, how dangerous is that to be bought on the secondary markets or through legitimate e-commerce websites that are being handled by nefarious actors, right? So it's very, very dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. Especially baby formula. And you think about all of that stuff. Front and center baby yeah. formula is what started this whole RC. You know, I mean, you, you hear the, 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 the history on that, which is you would think that's impossible that people would buy it. But you know, unfortunately, that's that's what's happening. Yeah, well, and it's just so expensive. I mean, it's uh, yeah, not for everyone. So, okay, um, we want to talk about kind of what you need from retailers and some of the things that they're doing that have really helped. And I think because we have so many people that you know from all levels that listen to the podcast, and it kind of can say, well, you know, I've got this going on. I see these examples, and it it relates to me. But how do I even get involved? And of course. Uh, educating yourself, right? Number one, I would say for sure. But then yeah. from your perspective, like what are what are retailers doing that are really helping you out? Like if, if you had to talk to somebody who just doesn't know where to start. Yeah, so having been to multiple um, organizational invites for panels and presentations over the year and meeting many, many, you know, dedicated retailers that are, this is their life's work. Some of these folks have been doing this 25, 30 years. I think what I can tell them is, is to first and foremost, um, if they can invest in in or organized retail crime or ORC investigative teams that are well trained in surveillance, report writing, utilization of their of their uh, techniques and and things that they can use, um, the cameras, things that they can really understand to really put the package together. That's yeah. always a recommended uh, first point. Um, but a lot of these retailers already have that. The second thing is uh, communication and engaging with our office uh, at the local level, right? So we have 30 SAC offices trying to get the word out so they can establish that that one-on-one -on -one relationship, you know, and speaking to three or four special agents in charge in the field that are that are friends of mine. They're like, hey, I really want to have that engagement at the local level with whatever company. So you know, really maintaining that, inviting them to present um, or talk at panels, um, ORCA meetings, loss prevention meetings, um, state and government meetings where, where ORC is the main topic or any of the collateral crimes, that's important as well. And then the other thing I always tell folks is just be patient. Be patient with us because these these at times are federal statutes. These are uh, that we're trying to utilize. The, the, the threshold isn't necessarily the same across the country. And every state has different ways of looking at those those crimes. And sometimes those take, you know, up to six months to a year to develop, like the one in Chicago. So, you know, the patience that comes with it um, can at times be difficult because we want instant results, especially if there's violence. Um, uh, when you're working a financial case, for example, a traditional financial case that could take 18 months to, to two years, you know, some of the bigger takedowns that we've done. And, and then but and the patience also includes the deconfliction. As we're working with the interagency, trying to build out that case, that's why sometimes it takes longer. It's not necessarily that just the prosecutor doesn't want to take it at the state and federal level. It takes time to develop that network, really look at the intelligence of who those crews are, do some investigative uh, research on the front end, subpoenas on bank accounts, maybe even a Title III, uh, whatever is going on. So just have that patience. And then, you know, like I, the very last point I think I already said is that communication at the special agent in charge office. Um, and, and we can do that. You can see the, the way to how to communicate with us with all the uh, information on the website. Well, you make a great point about the technology piece, because I think that 
to have the patients, you also have to be diligent on our side of the fence with the loss prevention executive and their ORC investigative teams to build a nice package, right? I mean, not calling the office to say, oh, the guy just ran out with the yeah. with all of the tide. It's like, well, wait a minute. You know, you've got CCTV. Hopefully you have facial recognition. Hopefully you've got other things within your store that could potentially you know, build up a case to enough with all of the assets and all of the CCTV and, and all of the dots connected, which yeah. may be an aura type thing, right? When you think about technology for sure. So I'm curious though, for just to get granular for a second, like if, if our ORC investigator team builds a case and they have it all wrapped up in the bow with the CCTV, the narratives, potentially suspect interviews, whatever, is there a certain dollar amount that they need to get to before they're like calling. I mean, I know they should form a relationship, right? With the yeah. local office. So they know who everyone is, but I'm talking about when they have the package, like, is there yeah. a certain level that they need to wait? I mean, how does that, <clears throat> well, you, on your you mentioned, yeah, you mentioned, sorry to cut you off, but you no. mentioned one thing that, that struck my interest. So the innovation piece is critical. Not only are we innovating in HSI and, and every other agency is talking about data and, and innovation and, and, you know, the word data scientist is is spread out in the federal government because we're we're working in the, that space with people that that can bring analytics together. Um, I think the same happens in 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 the in the retail industry, right? As they're building out their case and and trying to get to a threshold can be difficult depending on the state. So I don't want to say that it's a ten thousand or five thousand or a hundred thousand. It's more so about the criminal acts associated with those networks. So, for example, if it's a um, a theft ring of credit card fraud or store-bought cards that they're buying at the secondary market and then they're utilizing it to buy um, things online and they and they they get identified through an investigator that identified a fraud can they build out that case individually through the technology and the in the industry that they're in right or do they have an ability to utilize one of the partnerships that 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 many of the uh, companies have in, in the retail space to look at data cross-referencing that data with another um, maybe even a competitor through a third party and looking to see if that case can be built out a little bit more before bringing it to uh, either an ORCA at the, at the local level, state level, or even to a federal prosecution that would have an immediate enticement like an export charge or, you know, some cases we're seeing are stolen goods being wrapped up through uh, counterfeit uh, or means or through warehouses and then shipped overseas. So HSI, obviously, looking at the bulk of shipping, looking at data and, and cross-referencing with those countries, we would, you know, that's one of those type of cases where we would jump on to see where those that merchandise is being exported to. That's right in our wheelhouse. So th that that's kind of the best answer I can give you because in speaking to, for example, in the in the Northwest, those um, whatever thresholds might not be the same as in the Southwest. So really what I tell retailers is utilize the resources that we have that we've offered on the website, utilize those investigative teams that build out those investigative leads, um, cross-reference them within your own industry if possible. And then really let's, let's, I like to see what's going to happen in 2023 with this, with innovation, mm -hmm. right? I, uh, a lot of my background comes from working in, in an interagency task force and, and looking at building out cases uh, across multiple agencies. So I really like to have that approach when I'm, you know, in, in my leadership role and I'm talking about the way we develop cases and giving guidance to executives or investigators that want to talk about their individual companies. Well, it's interesting. You talk about, you know, cross-referencing within your 
community, right? So community of retailers. And I think some folks know that, right? Where some might feel on an island where like, oh my gosh, this is happening in my store. Like it makes most sense to for your group, right? If they're like, oh, this is all, this might be happening to me. It's probably happening to others. Let me network within that group at conferences like clear that's coming up and you're speaking at, and we're producing and we're super excited, sold out, but (laughs) so so that way they can get there, network with the other folks like them and say, Hey, let's bring a case that is cross networked, right. Within the retail community. So they're not just coming with one, you know, one instance of this retailer. Uh, I'm just trying to illustrate one of the points you're making of people need to reach out to your community. which is why the boiling point pillar one is establish, foster, and maintain public and private partnerships. And that I'm not just speaking on behalf of HSI. That's across the board. Yeah. Right. In the organized retail crime space, you've heard Ben talk about it and other leaders in the industry talk about, you know, you have to maintain those relationships and being able to communicate effectively um, and, and pass a lead or, or take some bad news that it's not going to be prosecuted right away. That We got to go back to the back to the house and, and look at the case again. Um, and then really the sensitivities, if it turns into a, a, a violent criminal act, um, you know, what else can be added to it? how much financial loss is attributed to it? Is it tied to this, this other network interstate commerce, you know, that they're tracking them in four or five different states and maybe it gets prosecuted in, in outside of the normal state that they live in. So that that's why it's the number one pillar and it's critical in everything that we do um, at HSI. Those partnerships are critical and really the innovation to go to another industry. Really, when have you heard the banking consortium industry or the banking industry really get invited to this space? We were innovative in that space and that doing that. And really, I have to give a lot of credit to um, that side of the house as well that accepted that invitation. The association that we partnered up was ACAMS, RELA, uh, dived right in with us and looked at the guide that we put out. We put an investigator guide out that I encourage Which people is to phenomenal. Receive. And it really- We're going to talk been... about it at RELA. Yeah, we'll kind of do a deep dive in RELA, myself and Laura and my partner in, in, at ACAMS. Oh, you mean for CLEAR? For CLEAR, excuse me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, because- We just spoke yeah. about it at ACAMS in Vegas. Sorry, I'm yeah. mixing my conferences and then at CLEAR. Well, I know you guys are all over the place, as you should be. But what's really cool about that report that you mentioned, um, is it- ties in the money laundering aspect. And I think that through retail, it's like, you know, there, there hasn't been a ton of, I would say education on that. Okay. How does the money, money laundering aspect rope into it? And that paper, um, that white paper that you got, that you're referring to is phenomenal, right? Cause it goes through all of those different money laundering aspects. Correct. With two case examples, it's actually a 50 page document. So yeah. it's a little bit more than a white paper. Yeah. A lot of great, it's almost like a master's degree in, in organized retail crime had to be utilized there for the writers and, and the editors, but um, a great starting point to look at it from another lens. Yes. And, you know, if, if, if I had to talk about uh, what we would be doing in, in, in retail and, and training our, their own investigators, having a basic concept of illicit money movements, especially in the peer-to-peer um, environment, the immediate pay apps that of any of the five companies that, that are out there that you can pay people right away. Um, and then understanding the e-commerce fraud and the e-commerce perspective and some of the, the data analytics that comes with that and where we're going as, as you know, uh, as, as agencies and, and retailers, that would be a, a, something that I would be focusing on as, as, you know, running those kind of teams, because that's what we're focusing on in the federal government. So. Yeah. And we'll put a link to that, um, 
more than a white paper in the show notes because it's so good. I actually, I learned a lot too, you know, not being, being a, a, for, a fortunate observer of the industry and not working it like my listeners are, but really interesting though, on the whole money laundering piece and huge kudos to ACAMS. And, and I think, I think Rila also contributed to that paper and clear. I mean, it was just an 100%. incredible resource. Yeah. And a couple other organ LP magazine was part yep. of it as well. So yeah, it was really an interagency, um, intergovernmental, you know, public private partnership kind of perfect test. Yeah. And I know LP magazine is doing a lot with the orcas in action, which is a really important group and, and being yeah. able to really get the tentacles out to all those that may not be able to come to the national organization at clear conference, right? It's yeah. that local level, which is super important. Yeah. And even, in, you know, it seems like every month we find another industry that maybe we had not really thought about um, the, the car rental industry. A lot of these criminal networks are renting cars going interstate. Right. So intelligence getting from them, the, the National Crime and, uh, Insurance Bureau, that industry working with them, um, trade uh, association companies that are that deal with trade and, and, and exports coming to us and wanting to ask about, you know, what we're doing in this space. Um, and across the board in the money service businesses, um, maybe even down the road into crypto, down the world, down the road a little bit about how people pay for illicit activity and illicit goods online. So we're really paying attention to that. And, um, you know, we have a couple of things coming up in the next few months. We're going to speak at a national conference for credit unions as well, you know, financial institution. So um, we're invited to some of the other ones here in D.C. Uh, with any of the international investigator uh, crime associations that we can join with. We went to um, IACP and, and had a booth and talked about uh, Boiling Point ex excessively the, for two days. We really got the word out. Well, I don't envy you. You're probably hoping to be cloned at some point because I'm telling you, you definitely have your work cut yeah. out for you here. But we are super excited to have you on, on the podcast. And Talk LP was happy to do anything we can to help spread the word. But I do have one last question for you, which is pivoting from the professional into the personal, because of course, yeah. that's what we do. But, you know, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, your professional status. Clearly, I mean, I think every anyone would be like, wow, this is pretty awesome. The things that you have accomplished in your career and, and yet to accomplish with everything you're working on now. But talk a little bit about your leadership mantra, right? Like some of the things that have gotten you to the point in your career where you are and, and things that you've leaned on and hard times. Um, I always yeah. like to, I'm always curious. I, I really enjoy this part of, of my job about being able to talk about how I got to where I got to. I, the only way I got here with a lot was with a lot of good mentors and a lot of good coaches, the traditional old coaches, not the certification coaches that exist now, just the old way of guiding uh, a young agent to, to do the right thing. Since I've uh, accepted the responsibility to rise through the ranks and become an executive leader um, in, in my agency and, and almost 25 years on the job, I take it very serious and, and, and I, I love that I can talk about it. So I practice a philosophy called leadership, ownership, accountability and development. And, and to quote a book that I read, uh, Nine Keys to Successful Leadership, you know, great leaders don't just produce great results. They portray great character and inspire others to become better people by the way they lead their own lives. So that really struck with me. And as I use my influence now in my agency and, and as I get, you know, additional certifications and trainings and coaching certifications to become a better leader, to, to pay it forward. These are some of the things that I use in my philosophy, if, if you allow me to go through them. 
Um, it all starts with the word kindness. I use that word because it, it means to treat people with respect no matter what position they hold. So I talk about that with my team all the time. And I, and I like to do that in the interagency talks that I, I get invited to. I lead with empathy. You know, it's, it's okay to be a good person. You know, you don't have to yell and scream. So I, I lead with empathy when I'm talking to people. I lead by example, you know, and that means come in early, stay late, visit with your team, be accessible, invite them into your own lives to know a little bit about who you are. Um, I always remind folks, it's not about you. It's about the workforce. It's about the people and invest in them and they will follow. They will work with you. You have to treat them well. Um, a positive attitude in any given circumstance. You know, it's very difficult for me, for me to lose my cool unless the Cowboys lose. Um, <laughs> um, I try to keep my cool no matter what. And then at the end, which is something that I think I learned from my mom, uh, gratitude, self-awareness, humility, and happiness. You know, trying to just be a good, happy person, I think adds to your leadership style and, and really exudes that, 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 you know, positive energy that you need when you're leading successful teams. Um, so that, that is kind of my mantra. Um, I, I also have a couple things for like professional development advice, but only because I've gotten that from some tremendous leaders that, that invested in me and kind of gave me the guardrails to get to where I'm at now. And now the only thing I do outside of this crazy work that we do is, is give back and try to, to, to help others get to wherever they want to get to, you know, and I always talk about the position of leadership. It's not for everybody. It doesn't mean you're going to make more money and you're going to have a great life. It just means responsibility that comes with it. And you have to be smart and calculated in your career decisions to see if you really want to elevate to that because it's really not for everybody. And that's okay. It's okay to be a different chain of command person all the way up to, and it doesn't matter if you're in private or you're in the government. Yeah, those, those are phenomenal points. I think you just described the key philosophy of having a good life as well <laughs> as a good career, which a couple of things that you hit on, even at your level in your position, you're still learning like a constant Absolutely. learner. Yep. I've been challenged um, by, like I said, uh, really successful mentors, either officially assigned to me or just providing me guidance over my 25 year career that it doesn't stop when you make a certain position. You know, you, you have to educate yourself. You have to be uncomfortable and learn other things. You have to be willing to ask for help if you don't know something. You don't you, you don't have to know everything. You do have to surround yourself with smart people. That, that really can give you concrete advice or can really can maybe challenge you at times to give you another perspective. So those are all really important things that have gotten me to where I'm at. You know, and just, I wrote a couple last things, you know, the coworkers uh, helping each other out, really extending yourself to, to help the team is critical. And then I did, I did write about, you know, researching, um, getting comfortable with podcasts, uh, reading books that are outside of your of your normal reading just so you can understand the, the whatever industry you're in and really open up the aperture to uh, become a better overall overall a leader yeah i love that it you know it goes along with um maslow right when you're trying to get to that self-actualization it's not like it ever stops right and i'm yeah. a huge you know believer in education my mom put that in me she's like it's one thing that People can never take away from you, right? You get so, of course, you go, you get the undergrad, you get the master's degree, and you're like, I've got this thing hanging on the wall, and no one can ever take it away from me. But as you get older, you learn, I don't know it all. I still need to learn and develop and all of the things that 
I love your point about getting outside of the comfort zone. You know, it's reading the different things. I'm curious, you know, especially in your role, like what are some things that were outside your comfort zone that you decided to take on to learn? Yeah, so I was challenged to take a, a coaching a certification course through our executive leadership program. And I had to commit three months of my life, <clears throat> one week a month. And luckily, our executive leadership team allowed me to do it as a as a new a newly selected um, senior executive. And I, and I think it really, even though I had some of the building blocks of being a good leader, it really it added to my armor uh, to understand and reading books that maybe wouldn't have been in my normal uh, ability in my normal view of grabbing it off a bookshelf. You know, um, the power of listening. Uh, th things that, that that come to you because of these courses. So really, that was one. Um, and then the extended um, of taking the coaching from others to help me, even though I'm a coach, um, having the ability to be humble and be coached as a senior executive has also really helped me tremendously because we all need uh, that coaching experience to go through your problem sets, to really identify self-solutions, and to really, really get to the, the granular level of what you're dealing with. It can be any sets of problems that we deal with, right? All right. So I'll ask you one last question. And so for me, this is a big deal because it's all about empathy. And I honestly truly believe it. That and gratitude might be the keys to life. I'm not sure, but it <laughs> seems like it so far. Um, in, in, in your role, you see a lot of terrible things, I would think, right? When you're thinking about, you know, the perpetrators of these crimes, Um and, you know, the loss prevention executive is also seeing bad things and their roles and then, you know, stepping into that interview piece, right, where they're trying to understand and, and get that written statement and get the restitution for their company or whatever. But it still seems, and everyone who knows me knows I stand on a soapbox about this, about empathy for the person, right? I mean, that everyone is in their life, not... I, who hasn't made a bad decision in their life, right? So anyway, I just wanted you to talk a little bit about that because you probably, in your role, I mean, man, is it still possible you're having empathy for the perpetrator and, and well, does your empathy stop there or like talk about that? Yeah, I think when I was talking about empathy, it was in it it leading an example in everyday life. So that obviously extends to those things. And, and I haven't interviewed anybody officially because I've been out of the 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 field for a while, but I would tell you that we're public servants first and foremost. Um, we work as public servants um, and, and being employed by a federal agency that, that has the vast amount of authorities that we have. It's an incredible um, responsibility to have that privilege to work as a special agent. And, and the things that I've been exposed to, I've always attempted to have empathy throughout my course of my career. And, and that extends to the over 400 interviews I did when I was a rookie agent coming up, you know, the first 10, 15 years uh, to addressing, you know, high level criminal networks that, that, you know, very few of us get to interview because of the opportunities I was granted to be in interview room. So, you know, I, I, I think that um, it definitely has to extend in, in your everyday life. Um, how people give that example is, is individual to them. Um, you could extend empathy by just, you know, being quiet and, and being not so aggressive in your interviews, or you could, you could be a little bit more and say, Hey, would you like some water? You know, you know, trying to become and develop some rapport with the people that you're working with and trying to interview and those kind of things. And like I said, you know, we're public servants. Um, 
we there 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 are uh, there's a judicial process for the purpose of you know you have to prove a case. So I think when you walk into that and and you and you and you take that for granted, you, you, you don't take that for granted. You actually live that life every day. Um, it's a it's an it's an honor and it's a privilege that we have that integrity as special agents to to be able to do that and extend that in the right scenarios. Um, you know, the empathy may be not be the same when you're dealing with your teenagers sneaking out of the house, uh, which I've dealt with. Um, but then I regroup and uh, and read a good book on on how to be a, a better dad or whatever. And, you give try me some no strategic hope. strategic approaches uh, to address teenagers. If your teenagers think they can can get away with sneaking out of the house uh, and you're their dad, I have Let no me, hope. I have all, no hope. All teenagers, as you remember being one, and so do I, <laughs> have the ability to think about it. Now, whether they act on it, it depends on their self-guidance uh, and whether or not they have self-control. <laughs> well, I love that. Look, so all the listeners out there, if Raul Aguilar can have empathy, so can you. So that's yeah. my that's my drumbeat. Okay, listen, thank you so much for stepping into the Talk LP podcast hot seat. We really appreciate all of this information and uh, we look forward to supporting Operation Boiling Point and everything that you guys are involved in to help stop these bad guys. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, thank you again, Amber. And really, if I just leave one thought, you know, it, it's going to take a collaborative effort for us to to do more in this space. And, and we just have to continue to to be a little bit patient as we as we find new partnerships, new initiatives, um, either at the federal or state level. And industries that maybe we didn't think of uh, when we were maybe looking at this nine, 10 years ago in HSI or maybe within the private sector. Um, we have to embrace innovation um, and take a little bit of a leap of faith and, and really talking about data analytics and where do we go from here from the lessons learned when we're attacking this threat. And there's, there's there's some historical successes of how agencies worked on the opioid epidemic or the gang activity epidemic, You know, taking those lessons learned and maybe implementing them and really doing a better job of tracing um, and going after the financials uh, with, with the private sector and, and the financial institutions, utilizing those resources and getting some other federal agencies to work together. Um, that I think will, will be what 2023 will bring. And I just have to give credit to the, our team. You know, I, I am one person who just am very fortunate to have a great team around me. Um, Agent Skidmore and, uh, and the team that, that, that I've assembled around me, I've been very fortunate to have the right people. Um, and, you know, associations and relationships like with Ben Dugan, uh, that's really kind of opened up our aperture to to have more success. So I just wanted to give them a little bit of credit. And uh, our media team here in D.C. and our public engagement team has done a, a phenomenal job. Well, that's awesome. And you're giving all of retail hope, which is incredible. And we're excited to work with you for sure. So yep. thanks again for coming into the hot seat. We appreciate thank, it. Thank you. Be safe. Thanks. Cause, cause, cause. No one can do it like we do it like we do it like we do it. Cause no one can do it like we do it like we do it like we do it.